Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. We've got an hour of science for you and quite a few guests coming into the studio, which will be fun. In the studio with me is Dr. Crystal. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. And newly appointed Professor Laura. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't sound right, does it? (laughs) No, I'm just going to call you Dr. Laura because there's no professors in this room. Yes. Um, Otherwise, I'd have to call Professor Ray Professor as well. It's just getting out of hand. Morning, Ray. Morning. (laughs) By the way, yeah. if we are going on a fishing trip, I'm not calling you Captain Shane. I, 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 I saw one of the other people yeah. saying that. I just, I don't want that type of delusion of grandeur going that, around. That was, that was a member of the radiotherapy team, okay. and we take them very seriously, as everyone knows. Uh, no, there is a captain on the boat okay. on, our, on our end of year fishing trip for the folks to catch you up. There's a possibility the that uh, we'll be taking the team out on a fishing trip at the end of the year to celebrate uh, a year's broadcasting, and um, hopefully some of us will come back alive. But uh, you never know. We're I'm taking just, a, I'm just imagining a reality star. TV show sort of like Gilligan's Island, the science version. Yeah, scientists on a boat. I'd get shipwrecked yeah. on an island. Yeah. What happens next? It's, it's amazing. Yeah, that, that, that would be like all of us being Professor Howell. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, so it sounds like fresh water and great food. Dr. Lauren asked if it was a dress up occasion, and I said, given the, the number of Gilligan's Island comments that were going around, no, Marianne, you should not dress up that way. So, anyway, we're going to start off with some news. Uh, Hey, Professor, do you want to start? I can, but I need to calm down from my sugar high a little bit. Yeah. I've got an exciting story. It's a story for dog lovers. I am one, so I was very excited um, about this story. And it's all about how you calculate... your dog's age in human years. Yeah. And, you know, everybody will say, oh, you know, well, my dog's nine, so you multiply it by seven. And and sort of where does that come from? It's such like an old wives' tale. It's a bit of a myth that you just take your dog's age and you multiply it by seven. But this is what everybody does. Right. There's absolutely no scientific basis behind this at all. It's just the fact that dogs live to about 10 and humans live to about 70 Well, w- when this kind mm. of formula came up. And so you just take your dog's age and you multiply it by seven. So is it by eight now that we're living longer? Yeah. It makes absolutely no sense when you think about it because dogs are at sexual maturity by one. Right. So does that really... Oh, so we're seven? Yeah. Yeah, so when they're seven, they're good to go. So it makes no sense. Yep. But anyway, some um, real scientists have come along and they've actually calculated a new formula. Um, so researchers at UCSD have got a new equation to calculate dog age in human years. Um, this equation, by the way, you just you have to go on the internet and just input it. You can't do it yourself. Well, unless maybe people in this room can. I can't. You take your the natural log of your dog age oh, yeah. and you times it by 16 and you plus... 31. So the natural log of seven is like 1.9 something. Below. You can't do it. So you just get online, you input it in. But how did they do it? Okay, they took 106 Labrador retrievers and they analysed their DNA. And you can take um, our human DNA and you can sort of calculate our ageing by looking at epigenetic changes of the DNA. And so this will be addition of methyl groups onto the DNA. And we know that that increases as you get older. So you can take people's blood now and you can estimate the age. Now, what we now know is that dogs undergo DNA methylation as well. So this methylation you know, looks at the hmm. regulation of genes in a similar way to humans. So this DNA methylation is is evolutionary conserved. So with the lab retrievers, they were from a month to 16 years old. They compared known methylation profiles of a, humans across a wide range of ages. And the patterns resembled young dogs to young humans, old dogs to old humans. And so they came up with this formula. And basically, a dog at the age of two resembles a human in their 40s 
by the original way of thinking it would have been 14, but a dog in the two mm-hmm. is, about, is a yep. human of 40. And then ageing in dogs really slows over time. So a dog of 10 would be a human of, say, 60, you know, mm. in their 60s, for oh, example. It's, it's just not, it's really not linear in that It's regard. not linear at all. Oh. So it really plateaus out and slows down ageing in dogs. Now, this was done for Labrador retrievers. Of course, it's different for different breeds. Unlike, say, you know, when you think of old mammals versus small mammals, generally older mammals live longer, like an elephant compared to a mouse. But in dogs, it's completely different. Mm. Younger dogs live, tend to live, old, you know, for a longer period of time than older dog, than bigger dogs. Mm. Um, so this has to be now calculated for a range of dogs. And so all over the news since this um, paper came out, over CNN and Fox, because researchers in the US are making the call for 16,000 dogs across breeds so they can now look at the epigenetic profiles and calculate a dog formula for different breeds. Because That's fantastic. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. I mean, it always fascinated me. The two main sorts of dogs I've owned in my life were Siberian Huskies and Labradors. Labrador is a you know, good lab. You'll get 16, 17 years. But Siberian Huskies, often the, most of mine were gone by 11 to 13 years. They didn't live as long. I'm like, they're all dogs and they're all about the same size. Well, actually, and this is the great thing that they want to come out of this research. I mean, it's kind of twofold. One, because um, there are, you know, conserved patterns of aging between humans and dogs, mm. we can glean more insights into human aging. So that's great. But also, this is called part of the dog aging project. And it's so we can try to find, researchers can try to find out why some dogs develop disease and die earlier than other dogs and they can try and pinpoint that is and so they can try and track it and help them out help out the dogs that would be a good thing i like the fact that you mentioned it was done by real scientists as well not just scientists <laughs> real scientists but real scientists no myths group. no fake news no fake news very nice dr bristol Good morning. Have you ever had a go at VR, virtual reality? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Amazing. What, amazing? I've got one. What, yeah. You've got, got one? What yeah. do you use it for? Tell me. Uh, I use it for education purposes. No, gaming. <laughs> gaming. Gaming. <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 have you seen interesting I, applications? I, I, I used VR? one in the, in actually in the, I think the early 2000s, late 90s, when it was in a, still in development, really. And it was a very important training thing because the prop was a lightsaber and it was the scene from the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> yeah, cool. The little ball, Amazing. you know. I, the, the, Million-dollar research project, that was yeah, demo. I just did it for the first time a couple of weeks ago Porn. in Korea. Oh, my God, Shane. It's big. It's a big I, industry. I went um, on, like, a water rafting ride. There was a whole VR museum oh. in Seoul. It was incredible. Yeah. I just Amazing. did it for, for the thrills. They make you sick, those ones. Cheap thrills. Well, yeah. see, they're getting more sophisticated. Um, however, most of our current VR technology focuses really on sound and visual. You know, mm. it's, it's really about that immersive uh, sound and sight experience. However, this week, a paper was published in Nature looking at how how um, scientists are adding the sense of touch to the VR experience. And um, and this is a research collaboration um, between the City University of Hong Kong and Northwestern University in Illinois in the US, looking at how to create a lightweight, flexible patch that can be worn on the skin, which contains an array of very tiny sort of millimetre-sized, uh, sort of two-millimetre-sized sensors that can actually be worn as like a sleeve. So a haptic, haptic, haptic response thing, yeah, they call it. Haptic yeah. response, that's what they call it. And... Um, and, it, and these little sensors can apply pressure and vibration and even a sense of motion um, to be able to communicate haptically as well as visually and um, uh, audially or with, through audio with, with the user, which, um, which it was pretty amazing because the limitations on this. Now, you know, we have had this haptic sense in uh, VR technology for a while. Mm. However, the limitations were around the fact that you either had to be wired in, so you kind of are kind of tethered um, yep. by wires into the central unit, or if you're going to use a battery pack, the batteries are really heavy and so you know again it kind of really diminishes the experience if you're either kind of you know 
physically attached to by a wire to something or you're having to carry around a really heavy pack. And so the advantage of this technology was that it, it, it's powered wirelessly. So it uses a wireless powerless, uh, power system based on uh, near-field communication technology. So you, can, you still have to be quite near to a console, so about within a sort of a metre, uh, but you still have a lot more freedom of movement because you're not physically tethered because it's wireless. And the other thing is that the individual um, discs themselves, little actuators that are part of the array, um, uh, use less than two milliwatts of power, which is about 10 times less than previously. So they've been able to reduce the amount of power and be able to use a series of um, antennae to be able to power this sort of wirelessly. So it's kind of like the next step change. Mm, mm. It's interesting stuff. We had a guest um, on from NASA a few years back now and they they hadn't reached this point at that stage. They were training the International Space Station astronauts using what they called hybrid reality technology where they would 3D print the environment but you would wear the VR system mm. and then they would track your interaction with the 3D printed environment with lasers and you would get some feedback. Oh, right. But, you know, that's that's kind of half digital. Like they've still, you've still got to physically feel the objects. They had to print them out. And the room, the room picture was really interesting because it was just all white objects. So nothing had colour because you saw the colour in the VR through system. Through the VR. But the... The tracking system was able to see you touch the objects physically, and so and, and you felt that. So it was interesting. It was a very interesting way of training them, so um, but it was not quite at that level of sophistication. Yeah. This so work. this this yeah. system, it's it's wearable. It's imagine it's like a really thick kind of um, uh, wetsuit almost, like yeah. you know, like it's it's thinner than a mouse pad. Mouse, if people still use mouse pads, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but uh, the the applications they were using it for were things like uh, uh, communication between family members, like a, a a child being able to sort of touch their parent's arm, and you know, through the yeah. Yeah, kind of cool. system yeah. um, with uh, pr- prosthesis wearers, yep. amputees, yeah, being able them. to get sort of uh, signal feedback from a robotic hand up into their arm so that their upper arm, uh, was, when it was wearing the sensor, could sort of feel the, the, the responsiveness mm. of their prosthetic hand uh, picking up an object. Um, but then also the gaming application. Yeah, you yeah. know, you get hit in the chest, you get hit in the chest. Yeah. Well, i got one where I'm in a shark cage. Awesome, bloody scary. Yeah, because well, you can look around, that with a look around the room. Response. Oh, yeah, the tactile <laughs> response. That'd be a bit fun. Anyway, so the technology is leveling up. Sounds good. Dr. Ray? Dr. Shane, um, <clears throat> this week was a, a pretty big step forward in the process of a rather large plan I did not know about. Have you ever heard of the Mars Sample Return Project? the MSR, mm-hmm. which is a $7 billion plan devised by NASA and the European Space Agency to actually bring 30 small rock core samples back from Mars to Earth by 2031. No, That's but I'm cool guessing stuff. Shane's heard of it. Um, well, I have heard of it, but um, we, we have quite a lot of Mars rock samples here on Earth, but they're due to impacts that occurred on Mars and then the impact debris managed yeah, to get this, to Earth, this which is, is kind of weird, rare, and not overly usable. This is this is us, and this is actually yeah. after a strong re- recommendation from the National Academy of Science from 2011 about really the priority that science agencies need to have about exploring our solar system. Mm. And, and so it's actually already going, and what's happened is the plan's finally crystallized. NASA's already put $2.5 billion to the first part of it, which is a ro- the rock sampling rover, which launches 2020. So that actually part is already happening. It was the European Space Agency in principle approved it and is signing off to do their approval 
next week, formally mm. with all 22 countries in the agency. Uh, and that's a 600 million euro investment to start. And it's really a fantastic set of steps. So first is the Mars rover for 2020. And this is like curiosity size rover, so mm. almost the size of a car that's going to land and take the core samples. And the core samples, you think, oh, wow, this is a lot. 30 core samples. No, no. Each one's 20 grams. Like the plan is yep. to bring back about a half a kilo of yeah. Mars rock. Yeah. Um, so one rover goes out and takes the core samples and does all their lab studying and puts them and plants them as sleeves in the rock in this one particular crater. The fetch rover, which the ESA is making, then lands. They send a little fetch rover out from this lander to pet, pick them up and then bring them back to the launch vehicle. Which um, is 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 landed, and then they're going to launch a very small rocket into space. Wait, it, 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 it gets more complicated. They're going to launch that into orbit. It oh, releases yeah. to orbit. Then the ESA has an uh, another orbiting spacecraft that collects the orbiting rocks. Oh. It gets better. Then that sends the then it, it packages it into this other series of of containers for a separate launch vehicle that then goes from orbit to Earth without breaking rockets, because it's a lot of yeah, padding, yeah. Yep. to land in Utah in 2031. Easy. And, and they Easy. described it as more as, as complicated as landing on the moon. Yeah. And yeah. I'm like, maybe a bit more. And it's really interesting that the, the weight and, and the plans, but particularly the spacecraft back was interesting, because the questions about fuel make very interesting choices. They have to send it back on an ion drive, which uses mm. far less fuel, but it goes slower. So what? Uh, and also, where you p- do this work on Mars matters. So it's in a particular crater. I didn't recognize the name, but apparently it's warm weather for Mars. And that really makes a difference because they can use standard rocket fuels as opposed to a little bit more of an experimental one. So it actually makes that part a little easier as well. And But I would note, it would be the first time people have ever fired a rocket or launched a space vehicle from a different planet. Yeah. So, yeah, be pretty, pr- pretty exciting. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. And the, the complexity of it is interesting because it shows you how you need multiple versions of rocketry and so forth to get this job done. And the one-size-fits-all sort of scenario that we're used to seeing is not what you get when you deal with things like Mars. It's far more complicated. No. So, just for a few grams... Be good though, yeah. And yeah. the scientists reckon if they could get thirty tubes, they could do amazing science down here. Thirty yeah. rock core samples. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we had a lot of success with uh, the NASA. NASA's had a lot of success with Mars missions over the, the last decade, which is the only nation that has actually. Which has been, you know, there's been a lot of fails to Mars. It's hard work. So never know. Yeah. 2031 is when the rock should get here. It's starting to get depressing. Some of our listeners will appreciate this. When we talk about these missions, you start calculating how old you'll be when this happens. (laughs) Don't do it. Don't do it in dog years. Yeah, yeah, I'll still be there. (laughs) Be good. I'll still be around. No problem. Triple R. In the studio with us now is Dr. Sri Venkatesan. He's a senior lecturer from the School of Engineering at RMIT University. Sri, welcome to the studio. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me here. Look, it's great to have you in. We uh, we saw the press release that came out from RMIT about your work and the work your students have been doing, which was interesting. And this is 
basically trying to get uh, get. I suppose a handle on this massive number of coffee cups, uh, yes. co- sorry, coffee grounds coffee that grounds. Uh, that we put in their cups um, that are used, you know, around well, Australia and globally, and probably many of them in Melbourne. Yes. Um, first of all, let's just talk about that. I mean, how big is this problem? Because we hear a little bit about this. Yes. Um, to give a very clear or a clear cut answer, um, the cafeterias send about 150 kilograms every week to landfill. Okay. And we have got about 2,500 or so um, cafeterias in Melbourne. So the average is that much. So 150 kilograms per Per, per week. Okay, okay, per week. And so what does that work out to be, you know, a year or? Um, (laughs) um, uh, About 150 tons. Wow. Wow. And and what happens to this material when it gets to landfill or wherever? I mean, it's, it's not... The best stuff, is it? It is not the best. Um, what researchers have found is that uh, there is carbon emission and methane emissions oh. as well due to this uh, landfill, which is usually un- unattended. We just put it in and then we leave it out. So yeah. it is an environmental problem as so, well. So there's the, the gaseous emissions. And what about what's left over? Does that break down in, you know, in soil environments or so forth? Or um, ideally, we would expect that um, coffee, spent coffee grounds, to break down. Yep. But what happens is because it is all mixed with everything, so mm. it takes even longer time to um, uh, to get decomposed. Yeah, also. right, right. Mm. Now, your your team there has been, at RMIT, has been working on utilising some of this material in concrete. Yes. Talk us through that because these seem to be very different materials. Yes, um, you're quite right. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the things that we looked at is that concrete is a widely used construction material. Mm-hmm. Uh, some evidences say there is about 10 billion tons of concrete that's used in the world. Right. And um, somewhere between 50 to 80% of that could be the um, aggregates, the fine aggregates and the coarse aggregates. So, we so have it's like sand, sand and stuff. Yep, yep, yep. So we initially thought that if we mix concrete, um, um, a coffee grounds, spent coffee grounds. When I say coffee grounds, it's usually the spent one, the waste yep. one. Yep. Um, if we try to mix it with the cement, then there is a direct reduction in the strength. So what we thought is that instead of using it um, with as a replacement for cement, let's try to replace the sand as a proportion mm-hmm. first. So because the the idea is that um, the um, coffee grounds they mix very well with the uh, sand, as we see in the composting processes. Right, right. So do, that's where the idea started. Do, do we have a sand shortage? Yes. Right? This yes. is something I suppose most people wouldn't think about. There's, yes. a, there's a sand shortage. Yes. Surprisingly, Australia also has some um, dredging limitations or dredging uh, restrictions in some states. And then um, more, more than that, the countries like India and Sri Lanka, there's a huge uh, restriction on the dredging of the river sand. Mm. And um, I've heard that in some parts of Singapore, the sand has to be imported. Wow. So we are already at that stage. Yep. And and um, there is also some evidence to say that by 2050, the concrete production would have quadrupled, the 1990 productions uh, of, uh, of concrete would have quadrupled by 2050, but then we would have depleted the sand almost because it's a natural yeah, resource. Yeah. And when, when you put the... Oh, sorry, Laura. No, Professor, no, no. I, uh, I defer that you're a good judgment. <laughs> no. no, I was going to say, it's really incredible that... So we're bringing together two problems. Yes. So... 
With the excess of coffee grounds, which yes. people don't really think about because they just think about their coffee cup. So yes. the problem of having all this and then the problem of the reduction of sand that we're facing. Yes. So yes. you can use the coffee grounds to replace the sand. sand. That's where our uh, research is. That's fantastic. Yes. So I remember a, a catalyst program with Tim Flannery where they were putting algae into concrete. In fact, um, Kelson Nicholas at University of Melbourne mm. was the one that was... As a, as a just a proof of concept, they're putting algae in, in concrete. And mm. one of the challenges was how much material you can incorporate in as filler before you start to erode the strength of the concrete. So how much coffee can you get in there in replacing sand? Is it Very 5%? Good. 10? Very good. Um, the, what our research has shown is that you can use somewhere between 5 to 20% of replacement of the sand, but even 20% is a little bit higher at the moment. We, we have found that 10 to 15% is a very good average that we can replace uh, uh, coffee grounds. That's quite a lot. Yes. And, and then if, if, you, if you look at how concrete is used, not all of it is load-bearing structurally. And as soon Correct. as you start to get out of things that aren't actually holding bridges up, Correct. the needs and strength are re- very different. So you have a lot more freedom there, don't you? Yes. What happens is that because of the addition of the um, coffee grounds, definitely there's a reduction in strength. What we have seen is that if you plot it as a curve, um, the more coffee grounds you take on the x-axis, then the strength reduces somewhere between 20% to 50%. So you see a kind of a linear. So it's linear. So not like dog ears. It's, it's, it's just a linear, <laughs> linear scale. From whatever samples that we have tested, obviously um, to, to provide a very convincing journal paper research, you would need more samples. But whatever we have done, but we are fairly confident that's how it goes at the moment. So... Um, the uh, ten to fifteen percent is an ideal range as of the as of the moment, and we can use it in non-structural applications. And when, yes. And when when the concrete curing process occurs, mm. do you have any of the methane or other gaseous emissions from the concrete as a result of the introduction of of coffee, or is that completely locked in at that point? Um, we, um, to be fair, we haven't tested that point exactly. Mm. But what we have done is that because we mix the um, coffee grounds with the sand and we give a lot of time for it to blend we believe that it becomes almost like a natural resource all that um, sort of emissions etc would have reduced by then Hmm. so melbourne is a city that drinks a lot of coffee were you actually using melbourne cafe coffee grounds like like, how did this happen like Uh, did you did you just go into a cafe and say hey can we make some concrete out of that like how did that collaboration work yes Every, uh, like all Melbournians do, I um, no, almost all Melbournians do, I start the day with a coffee. So even before I get into my office, there's a cafeteria, and coffee is a matter of taste. So I go to a particular um, cafeteria every day and then walk with a coffee on hand. And uh, they become very friendly now. And then um, I, I was thinking, okay, what happened? And I saw them put the coffee grounds away and then... We thought, okay, can we use this somewhere? It would be instead of being sent to landfill. And they, that um, uh, coffee cafeteria owner, they supplied all the coffee grounds for us. Mm. 
That's great. I've just got to quickly ask, yes. everybody listening has got to be thinking it. When you make your coffee bricks mm-hmm. with your concrete, do they smell like Yeah, coffee? I was going to ask that too. <laughs> Everybody's got to be thinking it. Yeah. it, it I mean, we would potentially love that aroma, yeah. wouldn't we? Yeah, I want a wall that smells of coffee, <laughs> or, or the pavement right? when you're walking, down, you're walking down the street because there have been studies that say that the, the psychological response to the smell of coffee is almost identical to consuming coffee. coffee so if you could make yes. the streets smell like coffee, yeah. that'd be gold. Or maybe just after it rains, that That'd be great too. Yeah. <laughs> you just lick the pavement and you get a little fix. Yeah, well, it'll, be, it'll be nice, but unfortunately, that smell of coffee is only for a limited uh, period. Damn. So maybe yeah. a week or so after that. But when we keep the coffee grounds in my office for some time, <laughs> then yes, the office smells <laughs> great. Well, Sri, look, it's, it's great. It's been great having you in here and uh, get back to work and make these pavements smell like coffee. That's the next step for you and your students. I think it would be fantastic. But look, good to see that uh, someone's working on this because this is a big problem. It's one of the things we often forget about. Thank it's, you. Uh, it's nice to see that uh, we can put it in. It makes sense that we can shove some of this material into stuff that becomes somewhat permanent and okay. know, less of a problem to the atmosphere. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me here. You're very welcome. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We have our next two guests in the studio. They're both from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, Dr. Diana Hansen, and I believe soon to be Dr. Anne Lee. Welcome to the studio, folks. Thank you so much for having us. Oh, look, it's great to have you in. Uh, And how, how long since you submitted your PhD? I submitted earlier this year, so I've just recently passed. Oh, you passed. Congratulations. Well done, doctor. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) That's a good feeling, isn't it? Now, um, Dan, I'm going to start with you. Uh, The work you're doing is really fascinating. This is, uh, you know, looking into malaria and the way our immune system responds. One of the things I wasn't aware of is how long it takes our body to develop immunity to this, even if we're exposed. Can you talk us through that and how it compares to other diseases? Yeah, this is actually one of the things that attract to us in the first place to start investigating malaria is um, fascinating that despite people being exposed to malaria parasites in malaria endemic areas, they don't develop immunity for mm. decades. Mm. And that's how we set up a program a few years back to start investigating that. And one of the things that we noticed is that there were clear differences in that acquisition of immunity with people that were living in areas of high transmission compared to people that were living in areas of low transmission. Okay. And the things that we knew about that is that in, in high transmission areas, people are getting sick all the time. They're getting malaria clinical episodes all the time. They're getting mosquito bites all the time. And those clinical episodes are characterized by a very strong inflammatory response. Mm -hmm. And that's how we asked the question in the first place. Maybe it's that inflammation that is um, coming together with the uh, symptomatic malaria and the clinical episodes, the same one that is affecting the acquisition of immunity. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And a few years back, actually, we... Um, publish a paper in which we demonstrated that that could be the case. Yeah. So let me get this straight. The, you, you end up with malaria in one of these areas and you end up having an immune response to that, hence the inflammation, but you don't 
go to the point of developing an immunity over time That's as correct. you would with other diseases. But you do over, do we know why you do over, say, 20 years? Because it does happen eventually, doesn't it, for some people? Well, this is what we think that our recent paper is uh, starting to explain. We believe that this inflammation is might be playing a dual role um, in the acquisition of immunity. So there are two crucial cell types that are uh, required to confer that immunity to malaria. One is the T cells, that are the helper cells that help the B cells, are the cells that make antibodies mm. to fight the infection. So what we find is that this inflammation is bad for the helpers, makes the helpers less efficient. And that's why we uh, find it difficult to clear the infection and we always have you know, low parasite infections over time. But what and found in this recent paper is actually this inflammation is good for the B cells mm. and makes antibodies that have higher affinity for the malaria parasites. So what we believe is that um, inflammation is, uh, by playing this dual role, is uh, explaining the um, this long time that it takes to become immune to malaria because you have poor helpers, but over time, eventually, you develop B cells that are able to um, produce antibodies of high affinity for the parasite. Mm. So, and when you're doing your PhD, I mean, how, how do you go about finding that out? Is that something where you look at a range of different people and their blood supplies or their blood samples, depending on how long they've been exposed or something? How do you how do you do that in the lab? So in my project, I use a relative, a very unique um, research model to understand that. And in, in that model, we were able to look at what happens in the absence of those pro-inflammatory signals. How do the B cells mature and produce antibodies? Mm. And that way we were able to find out more about um, these processes and find out that when we have pro-inflammatory responses that actually regulates B cells to produce very high affinity antibodies and that help us better um, fight off malaria infection. Yeah. Now, I, I know in what, what you both sent through in the press release, this had some relevance with, I mean, as these things always do, with things like autoimmune disease. How does, how does that, it seems, you know, quite a distance there in terms of the autoimmune disease scenario is one where the, the body is attacking itself as the problem, you know, inappropriately. How does, how does this knowledge of these particular cells help us with that? There is actually an increasing amount of research in autoimmune diseases and it's found that B cells produce antibodies that target antigens that um, are our self Mm -hmm. And that's what is causing the autoimmune conditions like in lupus. Mm. Um, and um, funny enough, the same pro-inflammatory pathways are activated um, in autoimmune disease as they are what we've discovered um, in uh, malaria. Mm. And so there's, those common pathways mean that we can either, um, we would like to um, find out more treatments that can either switch on or switch off on these pathways, depending on if we have these infections or whether we have autoimmune conditions. So what do these findings mean then for people who do live in those malaria endemic areas? What are, the, what are these findings kind of going to tell us about future interventions for malaria? Uh, well, that's a really interesting question. I think that um, in malaria endemic areas, we are facing two main problems. 
we still don't have a decent anti-malarial vaccine. And I think that we don't have an anti-malarial vaccine because we still don't understand in detail the mechanisms required to confer immunity. And we need to understand that information to design uh, an effective vaccine. And uh, our research can inform in the design of these vaccines because we are deciphering the mechanisms required to confer that protection. And the second component is that because of the this lack of um, malaria vaccines, uh, in the research field, it's been more um, efforts put into mechanisms to control the vector, the mosquito. And uh, when we control the mosquito, obviously we are reducing transmission and we are re- it is believed that we are reducing the levels of immunity in the endemic areas. Um, we still don't know what are the consequences of that. We still don't know what's going to happen if that population loses immunity and if we mm-hmm. are facing having a massive rebound effect. So one of the things that is emerging as an urgent need in the malaria field is to develop um correlates of immunity to uh, have like surveillance tools to understand what is happening with the immunity of populations that are being um, treated with these vector control strategies. Mm. If, if you were able to, like if, if I was to give you a blood sample from someone with malaria, would you be able to tell me from that, given this, this sort of latest work, how long they'd been exposed to it? For, I mean, can you track the disease that way by by looking at blood samples and just where it's been for how long and so forth? Is that possible? No, I don't think so. Yeah, it's very it's very difficult to monitor that exposure. You really right. need to have exposure history. You can look at antibody responses, and uh, there is a lot of people looking at different antibody responses trying to determine if the person has been exposed recently to the parasite mm-hmm. or um, more long-term, but not just from a single blood sample, sadly. Yeah. So, well, it's just, yeah, it's always interesting to me to see how these things spread amongst communities and so forth and how that happens. So if you, presumably the, the goal here is to be able to sort of speed up this process of immunity if you can control that element of the of the immune system um, and you can, you can presumably say rather than waiting two decades for the immunity to kick in, you should be able to kick it in relatively fast. Is that something you think is conceivable at this point? Um, it would be something that we like to work towards mm. for the future. Um, at the moment, we probably don't have the means to target that pathway specifically, um, but definitely it has a lot of potential and would be great if we could speed up that process so that um, young children uh, develop immunity against yeah. the clinical symptoms of malaria much more quickly. Yeah, that'd be great. It's a big problem, affects a lot of people around the world. Thank you both so much for coming in and chatting to us about it. This is a really good find and, and the fact that there are links to other autoimmune diseases of which there are so many and they're often so underfunded actually relative to other things as well. It's great to see that all these things are tying in together and hopefully we'll have some, some good outcomes in the future as a result. Thanks so much. Thank you so much Thank for you. having us. You're very welcome. Triple R on FM Digital online via the app. We have our final guest in the studio. Her name is Dr. Sarah Best. She's a senior postdoc in Kate Sutherland's lab at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. She's been on the show before a couple of years ago. Welcome back, Sarah. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you in the studio. Uh, You work on this particularly aggressive form of cancer. Tell us about Mm. that. What type of cancer are we talking about? So I work on non-small cell lung cancer, which is a subtype of lung cancer. Why don't they just call it big cell (laughs) cancer? Well, we have small cell lung cancer and non-small cell lung cancer. And um, there are a group of mutations or genetic alterations that are present in non-small cell lung cancer 
that are characterised by a mutation in the gene KEEP1. Okay. And this is a really important gene involved in the oxidative stress response pathway. And so when this pathway is overactive, it gives the cells a real competitive advantage. So that means that non-small cell lung cancers with a genetic alteration in KEEP1 are chemotherapy and radiotherapy resistant. Wow. Okay. So the you focus, just can't kill them. Well, they're, they're pretty good at surviving, unfortunately. So, and, and in terms of cancer types, I mean, is this the sort of cancer that's in the blood or is it sort of thing that forms tumours? What type of... Because when you say chemotherapy, I'm thinking it's probably something that spreads throughout the body. So um, it's a type of lung cancer, so okay. it uh, derives in the lung, but it's also, it's highly metastatic, so okay. it can travel around the body as well. Yeah. And, and how do you... There's, I was going to ask you how you get it, but there's, it's interesting to me how often we inappropriately assign mm. lung cancer immediately to smokers, which is, yep, that, that happens, but a lot of people get lung cancer for different reasons. So what's, where, where does this sit in that scope? Yeah, so that's a really good point. So about 80% of lung cancer patients have had a history of smoking, mm-hmm. but that means about 20% yeah. have never smoked. And the type of lung cancer that we're looking at um, while smokers also get it, it's based on a genetic alteration. So just like breast cancer that develops because of a genetic alteration, this type of lung cancer is also um, based on genetics. And is that the gene keep that you look for so you can you can sort of predict patients that might develop this aggressive lung cancer? Yeah, so part of our work is bringing... Um, or highlighting KEEP1 mutation in the clinic and identifying in preclinical models ways that we can treat it and ways that we can identify it. So at the moment, KEEP1 isn't routinely tested like BRCA1. Yeah, I was about to, I was thinking of BRCA1 for breast. Exactly. So we're trying to push that into the public domain. So you think it will be? That's great. Yeah. So we're working um, with uh, Dr. Vivek Rathi at St. Vincent's Hospital and he now has a mutational panel that includes KEEP1 and a number of other mutations. So we're really trying to increase the relevance of really subtyping these KEEP1 mutant lung cancers. Is is this something that's tested anywhere in the world, um, this particular mutation? No, I don't believe so. Not, Not particularly. So I think... Other places in the world, there are more broad genetic testing. Mm. So I believe in the clinic at the moment, we have a few panels um, in Melbourne, at least, that I know of. And that tests for genetic alterations that we directly have a drug to target. Right. Or it will give a direct piece of information, and that's called the Oncotype DX panel. And at the moment, KEEP1 isn't included on that panel. Mm, But this is something that we'd like to develop uh, some therapies that can be translated to the clinic to really push um, the identification of KEEP1 mutant lung cancers. And in in those cases, these are people who already have cancer. I mean, in terms of a prevention strategy, though, like Mm. with the BRCA1 and 2 genes, would Mm. you, um, how would you roll out a scenario and say to people, you all need to be tested, you know, every five years, every 10 years, or, or, or I guess well, once, I suppose, to find out whether you have it. And then if you do have it, presumably you'd have to have you know follow-up visits to make sure it wasn't activated. That's a really good point. So I use BRCA1 as an example um, in terms of a gene that's genetically tested, um, but it also has implications in identifying the risk of cancer. Mm. KEEP1 is a different type of gene okay. where it would be present in the lung cancer itself. So once a patient presents with lung cancer, we would really like um, clinicians to know whether that lung cancer has a KEEP1 mutation. And if it does, then you wouldn't go in with radiotherapy and chemotherapy because you know that those cancers are going to be resistant to that. 
So it's um, we're working in preclinical models to identify some robust different types of therapies and our recent work has really discovered that these KEEP1 mutant lung cancers have an altered metabolism and we've been testing some different types of metabolic therapies in our preclinical models and so we'd like to really push that type of treatment forward. At the moment, patients with KEEP1 mutant lung cancer don't have an alternative therapy so Mm -hmm. we will... Clinicians will treat them still with uh, chemotherapy and radiotherapy, but we do know that it is particularly aggressive compared to um, a lung cancer without keep one mutation. And I guess that's part of the challenge, isn't it? Is this is trying to work out how to um, get that adoption into the clinic? Because because do you have any sense at the moment about how many patients? Um, do you have this uh, keep one um, mutation currently? Yeah, so about 20% of non-small cell lung cancer patients have a mutation in keep one. So that's a, one in five. It's a, it's a significant yeah. fraction. Yeah. yeah. And and then so, and, and but then again, there's that other kind of response, well, you know, will the test give you an ac- a clinical action? And I guess exactly. what you're saying is that at the moment, you're still working through in your preclinical models what the most appropriate um, intervention would be but you've got some pretty good leads. Yeah, we think that we do. So we do have um, two different leads that we're really pushing forward with and using these preclinical models, we're trying to bridge the gap between the importance of identifying the mutation and providing a different type of therapeutic mm. alternative. I mean, I mean, just to sort of halt on this point for a moment, but when you talk about no alternative therapies for people with this particular mutation, I mean, we're talking, what's the survival rate there? Probably... Almost zero. Well, on average, uh, lung cancer has a 17% five-year survival rate. So in cancer, we really look at, in five years, the proportion of patients that are likely um, to still be around. And so that's 17% for lung cancer, mm, which is hideously low compared to other types of cancer. Um, And so we know that of non-small cell lung cancer patients, patients that present with a mutation in KEEP1 have a significantly reduced survival, Mm, um, but it's not yet been quantified. Do you find that, I suppose this is a bit of a vexed question, but is there difficulty in getting funding for this sort of work as a result of the stigma associated with smoking being the only, you know, thought of as the Mm. only cause of Lung cancer, have you faced that? Yeah, so I think that's a really pertinent point because we really need to put more research dollars into lung cancer. So I think five cents of every research dollar goes to lung cancer research, mm. which is, and lung cancer is a leading Jeez. cause of death. <laughs> yeah. So I think. Is that just of cancer funding? Of cancer funding, right. Five percent of the funding goes to a disease that causes. The majority, the majority yeah. of, of, of the deaths. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, it's not quite proportional. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I, I should point out that some of the larger funding bodies like the NHMRC are putting uh, more emphasis on, um, on funding lung cancer research. And so we're starting to see a shift, but I know um, Kate Sutherland, who I work with, who's mm. been looking for funding for this for a lot longer than I have, mm really has faced a lot of these issues um, moving moving into this field, yeah. 
And I guess it's not a zero-sum game, is it? We shouldn't really talk about one cancer versus another cancer. We should actually no. be looking at how we grow the pie for everyone. And I think where I've seen some really nice examples of that at the moment is um, the, the Pink for Teal collaboration, um, where the yeah. breast cancer funding through their pink kind of initiatives have got huge amounts of profile, which is fantastic. Mm. And other areas like ovarian cancer, or in your case, lung cancer, and ovarian cancer is represented by teal. So, you know, this has been great, really, mm. really supportive environment where we're saying, let's not say less for you, more for us. Let's say, how do we make, how do we increase mm. both and how do, how do different sort of cancer charities and cancer support groups actually work together? Yeah. So I think that's really important. Yeah. I mean, something that's revolutionising cancer treatment of a whole, of course, is immunotherapy. And so when you're talking about the new therapeutic alternatives for, you know, your type of lung cancer, is immunotherapy a part of that? Yeah, so we made a finding uh, last year where we found that these um, cancers with Kate one mutation in our preclinical models were more responsive to immunotherapy mm. and were able to show a really robust response. And so now we've actually now we've started to collaborate with the VCCC immunotherapy program with Paul Neeson to really get some retrospective cohort analysis of Australian patients to see of those lung cancer patients who received immunotherapy what was their outcome if they did or did not have keep one mutation? So that's um, a study that we're just starting up. Yeah, that's good stuff. Now, Sarah, just before we let you go, you've been uh, put in the position of uh, running the postdocs association uh, at WeHi next year. What does that mean? Yeah. So that means, um, so WeHi have a PDA, a postdoctoral association. So as leader of the um, PDA board, we represent about 200 to 250 postdocs who are um, a really broad range of scientists at WeHi. And so we represent them in um, generating new professional development programs, a lot of social events to get everyone to come together and collaborate and get to know each other. And we also sit um, on a lot of the committees throughout WeHi and, and bring the people the postdoc voice to a lot of the, the main committees. And something that we're really starting to focus more on is linking the postdocs throughout Melbourne um, to really get everyone to network a bit yeah. better. So we have a couple of um, events next year to really get everyone together. That sounds like a great idea. And when do you stop being called a postdoc? <laughs> I think you're... When, when do you start being called a staff member? How, how long is a piece of string? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this seems ridiculous to me. Well, yeah, yeah. so you, you stop being called a postdoc when you become a lab head. Yeah, um, and um, And what percentage of postdocs become lab heads, you know? Pretty low. Yeah, pretty yeah. low. So I think um, as a postdoc in Australia, I think there's a really nice um, environment where postdocs actually feel like scientists. Mm -hmm. I know in other countries, and I've worked in the US, where yeah. you're called a trainee yeah. and you feel like a student and you're paid like a student. Yeah. So I think Australia has a really uh, nice community for postdocs, yeah. which is uh, really conducive to some good research. Yeah, I think I'm going to start remit. Like in your case, you're a post postdoc because <laughs> you're on your second one, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm. I'm senior postdoc. Senior, so, oh, senior postdoc. So I, I got yeah, to yeah. add the the senior. You got title. to add the yeah. senior. That's that's kind of people. The official title is senior research officer uh, yeah. for a postdoc. I mean, yeah. postdoc's just the jargon that we yeah. sort of throw out. I think we need to get rid of it, don't yeah, we? we but um, yeah, yeah cool people because they're actual staff members. Well, look, Sarah, it's great having you back on. Um, good luck with. 
Well, there's an incredibly important area of research, and we've we've had a lot of people on talking about ovarian cancer before and so forth, especially some of these cancers get less funding and, and less highlight, even though the survival rate is so appallingly low. Yeah. Um, so, you know, great that you guys are on it. Um, good luck with the work, and we'll chat to you again at some stage in the future. Great. Thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. Folks, we're pretty much out of time. Dr. Crystal, good to see you. Always a pleasure, Dr. Shane. And what a nice afternoon for some gardening. Oh, you're right. <laughs> okay. I was thinking of Netflix. Uh, Dr. Ray? Dr. Shane, I have a nice afternoon for some grading. Oh, grading. Oh, no, fun. And uh, P- Professor McKay? <laughs> Congratulations. Thanks so much for having me, Shane. Yes. Uh, we should also say... Um, we're very proud of Laura because she has just been listed as one of the highest citing researchers in this country, which is pretty good. And you're seventh in the field of immunology. How many people are doing it? Is it 12, 13 people in the country? <laughs> the only female in the top 10. The only female Ouch. in the top 10. Well done. Ouch. Well, hopefully that will change soon. But uh, you're going yeah, to have to sort that one out. Thanks for listening to Einstein and Go-Go. Remember, science is everywhere. I'm Dr. Shane and we'll chat to you again in about a week's time. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.